Happy Friday, friends, and welcome back to the Sweet Tea Series. My name is Ariana Silva. On this show, we interview women who decided to be the change that they want to see in the world. Uh, today, not only has that uh, woman definitely done that, uh, we are also going to be talking about why we do these, uh, try to make these sorts of changes through policy, community involvement, and what it means to be American and fight for that sort of American dream. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Ari. So you are the campaign director for the Right on Healthcare Initiative at TPPF. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to talk about healthcare at all today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because another thing that you are is um, definitely. So actually, someone the other day described you as bookish. And I thought that was such a funny but accurate description. I mean, look at the we have some props today, don't we? But you're a you. I don't know if you would consider yourself a historical expert, but you are no. a historical enthusiast maybe sure yeah and, and one of the things that um you'll quickly learn about caroline especially if you spend any time with her is her um fascination with the founding of america what the american philosophy is built on and so today especially for people who like haven't had the time to think about that or haven't had a good civics education um, <laughs> i think it's a good opportunity to learn about that and actually ask like the big question and like kind of break that down. So let's start with the interview question that we have here. And someone always asks us if you're being interviewed at TBPF, what's the role of government? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the role of government is to preserve the God-given rights of man, create the space for men to have liberty to pursue their highest end, the excellence of man in community with each other. Okay, and so how does that, um, well, of course, like the, the American Constitution would then, the idea is that it defends that, protects the ability for that freedom. And then the other question, the thing that we're going to get into today is civics. So like civic education, what does it mean to have studied that at all? So what what is civics? Well, civic education is important in every country because you need to be um, taught the history of your country. You need to be taught to love your country, defend her. But in America, because um, the people rule, we are in charge um, and have that self-governance is laid on our shoulders. Um, it's so much more important because without an educated, virtuous populace, um, this whole project doesn't work. I mean, we have to um, maintain that good faith exploration of what the good of our country is, how we're going to work these things out, and this reasonable exploration of what is what is the truth. We have to be doing that together. And if we ever lose lose faith in our ability to find what is good for America, if we forget who we are and, you know, fall to like relativism or to kind of this tribalism, we've we've lost. Mm -hmm. So let's even get back to the word itself just a little <laughs> bit, too, because you've said civics education. You explained why it's important. But what does the word civics mean, I guess? Sure. Well, it comes from the Latin, right, uh, for, for the city, like the Kiwi is, is like the people of the city. And we're all like citizens, right? We have a stake in this thing. We have rights which are protected under the Constitution. And we also have obligations to this political community, um, one of which in America is participation and um, giving back to this country that has given us th this very unique opportunity um, if, from a historical standpoint. 
Do you see why I brought her on the show? To- oh, <laughs> I talk big, but. <laughs> okay, so another important thing to like trying to define our terms here when we're getting started. Um, are you subscribed to the Sweet Tea series on YouTube or on any podcast listening platform? You know it. <laughs> but listen, you guys didn't follow me back on Twitter. I just want to I just want to point that out. Did we not? Okay, uh, in my defense, I'm not the one who runs Twitter. Oh, okay, I'll give um, you I'll a I'll make pass. sure that they're fired after this. Just <laughs> send, send it up the line. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you are. And um, if you guys are interested in learning more about these things and these sorts of interesting conversations, this is the best Subscribe, way to start. Subscribe, like, yep. and share. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the other... Um, Another cool thing about about your interest in this sort of stuff, I think it even predates college, right? So yeah, yeah. Wh- um, I guess tell me about some of your interaction with like your fascination with government even prior to that and your involvement with sure, it. Sure, sure. So I um I I did classical education K through twelve, so I was blessed with a very robust background in these ideas. Um, but also my parents are just good Americans. They're involved citizens. They always, they brought us to a lot of volunteer opportunities. And one of the things that my mom was really good about training me in was remembering our civic obligations. So I can remember when I was in the scouts in middle school, high school, maybe one of the service projects that I ran was running a constitution day fair. So we rented out, you know, the public park, the triangle of Dripping Springs, um, and we sat and gave out little pocket constitutions to people. Um, we had a little um, Jeopardy style game where we were asking questions that are actually on the citizenship naturalization test, I think, to see, you know, if natural American citizens, citizens know it, know yeah. it, right? And just kind of trying to share this love of what informs us as a political community of these ideas that should be, um, you know, like leading our, our thought. And honestly, it's sad how little people know. I mean, people have maybe seen I'm a Bill from Schoolhouse Rock, right? Which is good <laughs> and accurate. No, no hate there. Um, but they just don't have a sense that this is important, right? Like this is our this is our founding charter. Like these are the principles that are intended to hold us together and guide our action in this in this um, state and in our lives. That so, was a very long-winded answer. No, but I think that that's fantastic. Whose idea was it to do a Constitution Day sort of thing? It was absolutely my idea. Thank you, and <laughs> not at all my mom's. Love you, mom. <laughs> I think that's awesome. So, like, just being able to do that is what activated your interest in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had been doing these things. I loved my government classes. You know, I was um, learning Declaration statesmanship and reading these primary texts, and I really loved digging into the history of where these ideas came from, why they were important, what is it intended to achieve? Because you really do have to understand things like, I mean, what was the crisis at hand that they were trying to solve? What was the original public meaning of these words? What would this have meant to, you know, the colonists on the day of the founders, this type of thing. And that was because you said you went to, you had classical education is what it's called. I know those schools are popping up more and more now, thankfully, but can you explain a little bit of what defines classical education and how that's different than maybe someone else's K through 12 experience? Sure. Well, there's there's a conversation about what particularly defines classical, and I by no means intend to be the arbitrator of that debate. But I think at a simple level, what's going to distinguish classical education from other types is that it takes a long view of um, history, 
really tries to place an emphasis on what we might call Western civilization, the great tradition, starting from the ancients as sources of reasoning and wisdom and truth that we should be that that should inform our view of human nature and not necessarily starting as later um or as so you'd be by the you're talking about like greek philosophers sure right? yeah yeah like plato and aristotle is where you start right and and you go you go to their voices and you don't just present sort of um um abstracted scientific facts in a textbook with no sense of where these ideas came from Right. So if you're learning about science, would you talk about the scientists who came up with those theories and how they got there? I did. I did. That's I, awesome. I feel like that's definitely not <laughs> the, the public school education that I had from for high school. Um, so when, when another, well, and your mm -hmm. education certainly served you well, you have done well with it. I'm not by no means saying everyone should be like me. That would be no. Well, would there, be bad. there are times though that I do feel like I'm lacking because I've. I've had to, as an adult, really consciously seek out these things, which is a good thing to do and to always be learning. But it just feels sometimes like I don't have the same foundation to be able to build on. So, you know, it's just something that I had to like in college, um, especially in later when I realized it was something that I was missing. I didn't even know I was missing it to begin with. Sure. And so it's had to take a very conscious effort to try to build that up. And thankfully, working like around people like you and, and other people um, here at the foundation has helped me do that. But I don't think that... Um, I don't think that's something that a lot of Americans even know they're missing to begin with sure. to try to seek that out. You have to you have to have the hunger. But once you have that, if you have the will as you do, that can sometimes be almost better than having it given to you with no appreciation for it. That's and fair. I think that's I think that's something we need. And one of the other things you're talking about with with the importance of this and um is is the way that it protects the American idea and these freedoms that that is supposed that it's intended for, but whenever Americans, like you were saying, they're not they're not interested in it, they don't know about it. That's probably very much connected to a lot of the problems that we're facing, and you know, having women come on here to talk about how they're trying to solve. So, what are some of those those issues that can arise when people don't understand the the purpose of the U.S. government? I mean, for one, we we grow accustomed to the government not doing what it should be doing and doing things it should not be doing. These are kind of the two ends of it. Um, it's like, what's an example on either end then? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So overactive regulation really is the biggest example of government doing things that it should not be doing. Um, I, I, I talk a lot about the administrative state and kind of that bloat of bureaucracy, which not only is... I would argue unconstitutional, but also just it um, um, has has taken control over aspects of our life that the government was never really supposed to be involved in, and we've we've lost some sense of our personal and civic responsibility for these things as a result of that. So let's talk about the bureaucratic state then, because I feel like a, a lot of times it's thrown out. You'll hear it on Fox News. You'll hear it in whenever you have policy wonks talking about it. So what is a bureaucratic state and why is that something that that you think goes against, um, I guess, the original founding ideas of America? Sure. I mean, uh, it, it can be really abstract, you know, when you think of the blob and you think of the unaccountability of um, bureaucrats. The bureaucratic state is also, um, you know, your local government who has a good purpose and 
and a cause and things that they do need to be there to do. But I mean, we'll sometimes try and tell you, oh, you can't use a gas powered landmark in your own backyard or, oh, you can't paint your house this color or, you know, we're going to regulate your speech in all of these ways. We're going to we're going to infringe upon your private property rights in all of these ways. Um, and I think the other area that gets away from it is that a lot of times these, these are unelected officials. Right. And that's that's the big thing. Right. Because um, elections is how the American people express their will and what they have hopefully reasonably determined among themselves is what is going to be best for governing their community. But if you can't retract um, someone through elections, you you've lost the mechanism by which you convey your will to them, right? Right. And I think another um, threatening piece of it that I didn't realize until more recently, and I think a lot of people got a wake-up call to this during COVID, is how much the bureaucratic state... It, well, first of all, these people are there for decades, right? So you think that you're turning over by electing people, but a lot of the same personnel are still working in the government and are even making policies that are impacting everyone else. Sure. So like I, I think during COVID, that was one of the big times where we saw people and, and actual laws or just regulations that you have to follow without with penalties that are attached to them by agencies and people who aren't elected by, sure. by individuals. Sure. Yeah. And so yeah. what are some of the... Um, because the government is you know, facilitating those sorts of things and overreaching its boundaries, what are some of the duties that it neglects? I mean, well, why why do we, why are governments instituted among men to protect our rights, to secure us as a nation? So, okay, let's talk about, we're not, we're not securing our border. Crime is rampant in most major cities, which means we don't have the rule of law. How can you even have rights if you don't have, um, executive um if you, if you don't have people enforcing the laws right sorry i'm stumbling over my words no here a you're bit. totally fine i um, think that it shows like what you're saying for crime is that people who are committing crimes and not being you know properly going through uh through the criminal justice system that leaves people other people who are not able to exercise their rights as a result of that exactly yeah um and, and i mean this is just shocking to me i mean it's like the that's what your number one purpose. And I think the border security piece is a big one right now where that's you can't have a nation that has those ideals if you don't have a nation which requires borders and border protection and, and who those people are. Exactly. You have to first exist as a political community before you can, as a community, determine what is best for you and your citizens. Right. And so let's talk about then some of the solutions to try to to fix this problem so a lot of americans like like we're talking about well, aren't secure the border <laughs> <laughs> so number one secure the border watch our other episodes on that and look at what tbpf is doing to <laughs> to try to fix some of those things um, but also i think education is a big piece of that absolutely so like i'm saying people don't know what they don't know so what um let right now i think one of um a big thing that's happening in the conservative sphere um is there's a lot of people who are criticizing uh public education in the collegiate level. Sure. Which I think is totally fair because my college, again, I think it fell short of providing the <laughs> that component of education. Mm -hmm. But I think that they might actually be, conservatives might be going a little bit too far on their, their harsh criticisms of the university system and people getting liberal arts degrees even. Mm. So I'm, do you agree with, with that um, um Yes and no. Let me say more about that. I think that um, insofar as the study of liberal arts is not what it ought to be, there is 
some valid criticism in that. Um, I think I think if this were a straight toss up between in an ideal world where both functioned as they should, would trade school or something be better than liberal arts or something? And the answer is depends on your vocation. Um, but also we've lost um, we've lost our belief that you can find the truth, which is what a liberal arts degree is intended to sort out. It's supposed to be a place where scientists like seeking like CNT, like true knowledge, right? Uh, can can think in, in this place that's been set aside for them and kind of foster this reasoning that we really need in America because we don't have a dictate from God or something that tells us what's good, right? We have religious freedom, which is a big thing. Um, but we also have to actually believe in the truth and in its capacity to shape humans and the university has lost its faith in that as the end right because what you're saying is that you need to believe that there's a truth to be found yes and i think that even the classes that i've taken that were like on the liberal arts side of things the a lot of them were very relativistic yes so many of them were so what what do you think is like some of the the downsides to relativism um i i mean it destroys the american project in what um, way um well, first of all, you lose your capacity to see the American the American founding as the best regime. And you have to believe that. I mean, like this is our this is our beautiful country. But mm -hmm. also, I mean, the people the people rule, right? Which means we have to have a trust that this is our best shot at sorting out what's going to be best for us. It's not perfect. It hasn't always worked perfectly. It won't always work perfectly. But this is our best shot. And so we have to put everything into that. Right. By which I mean, like, we, we have to trust that when people elect their representatives, that they know what they know what they want, that they're informed enough, this sort of thing. But if we don't believe that... Um, some things are better than others that like there is someone who's better to elect over another um over some sort of like exertion of the will you know that like oh well if they elected this person they're just a racist or whatever the tag word of the day is which is sort of where we're leading right um then it's not going to work so what um what do you think sets america apart as, as a country like from its founding what are some of those principles that that we're upholding that didn't exist prior to the founding of America. Well, well, I'm I'm not sure that I would say that they didn't exist. Well, I guess this that is... didn't exist um, enshrined in a like they they weren't existing in other countries insofar as they weren't enshrined in their law. Yes, yes. I mean, they they exist like in the in the great tradition, right? Um, well, what's the great tradition? Let's let's break down all the, <laughs> that, the big now words. that I am not I am not equipped to say. Again, remember, I am just a fool. I by no means am the best representative <laughs> of any of these ideas. I just I just love them. Just an enthusiast. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but I will say I think what sets the American founding apart, right, is that it was founded by bold, brave men and women who were seeking religious freedom, right? So they were seeking freedom of conscience to follow the moral truths that they held without the dictate of a magistrate. And they were seeking a reasonable country um, where both of these freedoms exist side by side. And you generally don't see that. And I think that that's such a great opportunity um, for friends of liberty, for friends of serious thought. Um, and I think it 
can be done well if we if we um, continue seeking this excellence, right? So what um, if people are saying like, you know, that's a great thing. It's cool to learn about. But if I go study that, I'm not going to end up with a job. What are <laughs> your thoughts about that? Um, I have two things. First of all, I have a job. Second of all, <laughs> you don't have to study it. Um, 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 I hate this idea of expertise, you know? Um, we all should be lovers of liberty, lovers of the American tradition, and this this sh should shape you as a person and as a citizen, no matter what your calling in your ordinary life is. So it's um, what you're saying is that it's not just intended for the learning and becoming an expertise, but you you think that it can that it has other areas that I can, yes. can help people? So let me let me make that a little bit more concrete because I'm way too abstract. You know this, Ari. <laughs> you, you need to bring me down to earth a little bit. Um, I, I obviously love liberal arts. I knew I wanted to do to pursue this path in higher education. Um, Actually, let's talk about that then. How What did that path look like for you? <laughs> um, say more. What do you mean? So what did that path look like for you? How did you decide to go to the college that you went to? What was your experience like whenever you were there? Sure. So I went to Hillsdale College, as you might recall, which is a wonderful private liberal arts education um, deep in the heart of Southern Michigan. It's right there. <laughs> um, and I did that because I... I loved the great tradition and I wanted to continue deepening my ability to engage in this conversation. Um, and my my background really set me up with this idea of lifelong learning that no matter what I ended up doing, and I knew I wanted to do politics, so it wasn't really a question for me, but no matter what I ended up doing, this hunger for further knowing would shape who I who I am. It's not even what I know as if it's a list of facts, but it's who I am as a person who then goes out and engages with the world. And so even if I ended up in some other career, I mean, many lifetimes ago, I wanted to be in the fine arts, right? Which is not really a thinky job per se. It's closer, almost a tactile, right? Because you're you're using um, skills. Um, but even if I had done that, I would be the sort of person who um, tries to engage with the great tradition, who understands that like there are great thinkers um, who we should look to for these truths and that sort of thing. And I think that that's really important um, because it's not like, oh, I do liberal arts and then I get a liberal arts job. Um, I, so then how does it serve your job, for example? It has made me a careful reader, a careful thinker. I... I strive, and this is hard because I got an ego, but I strive to remember that there's always more for me to learn, that I need to carefully attend to the arguments of those who I may be um, on the other side of the fence from. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't love the like liberal arts is for critical thinking type of argument. I, you may have heard this. Um, because I think it fails to recognize that there is an end which this is seeking as well. Like there are, so it's not just for the thinking because then that that stops halfway. You have to ask, what is that thinking for? Right, exactly. Because it's like you can think carefully and still reach the wrong conclusion. And obviously, as imperfect humans, we can never know the full truth this side of eternity. 
But there are better and worse, and I think we can say that. And so I try to be careful about saying, oh, it'll make you like a sharp thinker, um, but it will, it, will, it will hone the skills that you need to get as close as you can to finding truths, right? And like, oh, what's better or worse? Do I think that, you know, the city of wherever I live, I'm trying not to call anyone out, <laughs> should be like putting out this regulation that bans short-term rentals. True story. Is that better or worse? We should be able to engage in reason and figure that out. Right. And then at, be able to act on, here's what I believe to be true. And now I have something on which I can Exactly. Act. Exactly. Right. It's not just like, I thought real carefully about this, so you can't tell me it's wrong. In a way that I think so. So Hillsdale, I think, does a good job of protecting what liberal arts is and is intended for. But let's say a liberal arts degree at another, um, any other university lots of those in Texas, I think, fall short of that. But I think that part of that is because they're teaching ideology instead of philosophy, which is something that you brought to my attention. So can you explain what the difference is between ideology and philosophy? Um, sure. I mean, I think it has to do with how you position yourself vis-a-vis -vis the truth. Um, and, and who you think the ultimate arbitrator of that is, right? Ideal, the, the framework of ideology has a tendency to um, sort of reduce everything to um, like exertion of the will, you know, and you're like, oh, well, that's the idea of these people and, and not um, take into account the potential that some people might be closer to the truth than others. And I think that what you said about philosophy that ideology doesn't do is that it sharpens human reason. Yes. Yeah. So what do you mean by by that? Or I guess how does philosophy serve that? Um, I mean, philosophy comes, I mean, the, the Greek is like philosophia, right? Which is like lovers of wisdom. Um, and I think that's really how you have to position yourself in this, in this um, life. Because I, I, I am a fool. I will never know the, the truth, right? Um, but hopefully I'll get closer to it, right? And right. that's how I try and position myself. I think um, there's sort of a train of thought that thinks, like, you can know things for sure in a sort of factual way, in a, like, empirically verifiable way, which is true, and you do need that. I'm not, like, bashing the place of political knowledge, political science, but they're different things, and I think understanding that is important. Right, and I think that something that you that you read are iterating a lot, um, that makes a lot of sense to me, is that whenever you put yourself in a position to seek truth, you're going to get a lot closer to it than if you're in a position where you don't even believe the truth exists. Exactly, yes. You you said that so much better than me. <laughs> you know, it's only because of uh, spending so much time with you, Caroline. <laughs> so um, another thing that we've been able to do here at the foundation is try to course correct when people overstep the rule of government. And that's rolling. We're, thank goodness, have so many intelligent people who are able to try to reshape that. One of those things this year was the Death Star Bill. 
which is a fantastic name. As a Star Wars fan, I'm absolutely loving that. <laughs> so um, there's actually a Forbes article about it last year. Um, and so I'm going to read a few quotes about it just to explain what that is and how it's gone into effect now. So someone was talking about local governments and what and the way that they're Overregulation is really impacting people who live in small communities. So someone said, the patchwork of regulations that currently exist in Texas makes it more difficult for a business to operate and create jobs, said Annie Spillman, Texas, um, Texas director for the National Freedom Federation of the Independent Business, which represents small businesses in the Texas legislature. And then she continues after that. The world's ninth largest economy shouldn't be subjected subjected to the whims of rogue regulators who often pass um, onerous mandates in the dead of night. So I think that that's one of the issues that's facing small town communities, especially. And then also just local cities like Austin and other big ones. That yeah, are for sure. Having that sort of regulation that impacts the way that they can live their lives. Or you like even mentioned the short term rental thing that impacts the um, yeah, thing, something that has been a part of what all citizens of Texas were at one point able to do and just right. part of yeah. what you can do with your own home. Um, and then some uh, another quote from that article is, the compliance cost alone kills job, increases prices, and discourages innovation and growth, Quintero added. By the way, that's James Quintero from here at the foundation. The Regulatory Consistency Act brings some much-needed common sense to the system, unifying the rules for conducting business in a predictable, reliable, and efficient way to promote compliance. So basically, he's talking about this Death Star Bill Now Act, and I think uh, the idea of it is to help curb some of the oversteps that local governments are even making. Do Are you able to talk a little bit more about why, um, why something like this is important? For sure. Um... This is important from a practical standpoint because there are onerous local regulations that impact people's day-to-day life, as um, that article rightly notes. Um, It's also really cool from um, a a standpoint of principles, right? Because this is a preemptive act. It basically sets out a few sections. I believe it's five sections of code in the Texas state code. So this is statewide code and says, look, guys. Guys being the cities. Um, if there, if if something in these sections of code is covered at a statewide level, y'all can't regulate beyond that, right? Like this is something that the state has made clear, and we are preempting you from regulating in those areas. And these are things that are um, that the legislators determined were important, right? That fall under the proper ends of the state government. And the state government, remember, this is like reverse federalism, okay? The cities didn't come together and make up the state, okay? The state made the cities. And so the cities have certain proper ends, right? They should be doing law enforcement. They should be doing roads. They should be doing, you know, district courts and that sort of thing. They shouldn't be regulating what you can do with your private property right and one thing that i think people can mistakenly critique about this is that you're like oh well it's giving too much power to the state and not enough to our local governments it's better to be more local but what this actually does is it creates like a way to localize governance even more back into the family so it protects from that over governance from like the it brings it into the even smaller government of of the family sure well right because you're correct that is one of the counter arguments you'll hear people push this idea of local control um which 
some things are better to be done at a local level, but you need to be asking yourself, is this something you should be doing in the first place? Right. Which, which I, I think it really is the issue at hand. And I think a lot of people haven't been familiar with asking themselves that question of does our government even have a right to be doing this in right. the first place? Do we, whenever something goes wrong, they, I think a lot of people are very quick to turn to the government as a solution to that. Yeah. Let's get back to like where did that sort of thing even start? Because I don't think it's a new thing that's just happened in this century. No, I mean, we definitely, as sort of progressivism and this idea of the welfare state grew up, we've lost our imagination for the capacity of civic life. I mean, Tocqueville's intermediate institutions, like local communities, bowling alone, whatever. There's a lot of different ways to interact with this idea. Um, but the government just does too much and we're used to turning to them for a response. I mean, I see this a lot in my area of healthcare. Um, Government-run programs are not always the best way to fix a problem. There are times where some populations are best served by having a public safety net, but there are other times where that's not the best way to achieve that end, and people forget to even ask that question, no matter what, you know, political tribe they may come from. Um, which is why I think it's important to get back to sort of these first principles and be saying, like, what are the rights we're trying to preserve here? What is the best way to, like, govern in this situation? And you're reading a few books about that right now, right? About, like, yeah. progressivism. So what what are some this of the books you're reading? Um, Christopher Caldwell is at the top of my, well, underneath only the Gabriel Garcia Marquez on my reading stack. <laughs> um, and he's um, talk. the book is called The Age of Entitlement which I think kind of, he's talking about the cultural revolutions and s civil rights issues sort of in the 60s, which is later than progressivism. But this is some of this like cultural change of um, kind of a loss of personal responsibility, civic responsibility, very much um, individualism being treated in a different way. And I'm all for individualism as the founders understood it toward excellence, uh, but not just sort of like, blindly asserting itself right um and as you start building out these things expecting the government to do more and more for you in areas where they had never ventured before that becomes a problem as you become used to relying on them and less on you know your neighbors your family your church whoever it may be right so by over trusting the government it's also then like made people that uh, just not used to relying on their neighbors, like you're saying. Right. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the idea of progressivism, then the thing that continues to advance this mission. Are you, are you reading something else on that right now? I am. I mean, I've been going back to um, this is actually a collection of primary sources. I love primary sources. Hillsdale taught me to love this. Um, it's edited by Dr. Pastrito, who's the dean of the grad school at Hillsdale. So <laughs> kind of cool guy. Um, he's scary, though. I never took any of his classes. <laughs> um but, I mean, progressivism, in my mind, kind of starts with um, Theodore Roosevelt, kind of um, what some might call the populist movement, which I think is a little um, deceptive, honestly, because it's sh it's shrouded in a lot of language about moral uplift and giving control to the people, um, trying to protect against um, evil big business and all of these awful elites and this sort of thing, which very much resonated with people at that time, I think. Um, but the, you know, sort of practical policy solutions that emerge from this are a much stronger executive, much weaker state parties, and 
an increasingly bloated administrative state as the executive started suddenly shooting out all of these weird little, you know, agencies and things. Yeah. Right. Which I mean, again, it's unconstitutional, guys. Like legislative non-delegation doctrine. Like this isn't even really the executive has no um, particular power over it. It's a big problem. Um, and it's it's doing more than it should be. Um, and I mean, the the other side of this, right, is that progressivism is too ambitious in the ends that it ascribes to government, right? So, I mean, some people will say the the American founding, like, lowered the ends of government um, insofar as it took the, the, the realm of revelation or of men's souls out of the realm of government, right? Um, no more state churches, um, which may be more or less true. Um, but the founding couldn't lower the ends of man. Like we can still, if we if we don't lose sight of human excellence and like people can be good and noble and virtuous, if we don't lose sight of that, the ends of man are still there. But progressivism somehow was like, no, 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 we can have man perfected scientifically and we can have government perfected scientifically and, you know, efficacy and progress and just sort of this machine-like um we can create a perfect system that right. everyone falls into and becomes perfect and oh guys guess what checks and balances so last year like we've outgrown the need for that administrative bureaucracy will do it so much more efficiently so how far back does that date that progressive idea then turn of the century just about is okay. where you start seeing it which i mean it's sort of tied into um the industrial revolution i would so turn say of 1900s <laughs> uh, yes i'm yeah. sorry <laughs> Wrong century. <laughs> not, not, not um, 1999, but 1899. <laughs> yeah. And that's, um, so this is nothing that's new, but something that rather seems to be like, I guess it progressed to this point, if you will. You could say. So what do you mean by that, that there's no actual ends to it then? Uh, ends to? Progressivism. Oh, uh, well, I mean, um, it, it's just always eating itself. There's always, there's... Um, I mean, so I guess, like, let's say how it impacts pe how people speak, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the example I was making to you earlier, right? Uh, it was like this idea of there's always some new PC phrase of the day. And what even I mean, 10 years ago, there were cultural, I'm not going to get granular, but like there were cultural ideas, phrases and things that even, for instance, then President Obama was not OK with that have now been pushed um, to the point where you're a bad person if you don't accept these ideas. Um, because there's, there's no sense of, um, eternal truths, I would almost say, which is what, like, the great tradition would tell you is, like, that some things are always seek. true. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, these truths are going to be reflected differently in different times, but not, I mean, there's really very few historical things that are going to change there are no historical things which will change human nature. And there are very few which will significantly change the way you see human nature, I would say. Which is something that progressivism just misunderstands. They sort of said to themselves, we have shiny new technology and therefore humans are not like fallen anymore. So they believe in a perfection that I think conservatism automatically admits is, is not attainable. Yeah. Yeah. So whereas conservatism is what how can we make 
this is the best that we can, emphasis on that we can, versus right. progressivism is, no, we need to make this perfect and stomp out anything else that doesn't yes. adhere to that. And, and there's no forgiveness. You know, this is like how there's no um, sense that, like, we're never going to be perfect about racism or any of these other things. Um, cancel culture, I think, is a pretty good expression of this. Right. That's true. And I, I guess I hadn't made that connection before that that you're if you think that there is such a thing as human perfection, then you can be a lot more strict on people if they fall short of that versus if you believe that people have a fallen nature, then there's forgiveness and redemption and, and more growth that you can have with within right. that sort of idea. So I think we've only been able to dance around and touch just a little <laughs> bit on the ideas of like what government is for and um, the, the importance of civics education. So let's say there is someone who's inspired by this and wants to learn more. What are some resources that you that you would suggest to them? Um, I would go I would go to the primary sources, frankly. I mean, read some of the Federalist Papers, like go back, read the Declaration of Independence. Do you have a Federalist Paper that you'd recommend to people to start with? Um, 10 is always a good one. 10 is about factions and how um, the democratic institutions kind of play around with this. Right. Also, sorry, let's ask even the more basic question. What are the Federalist Papers, Caroline? <laughs> Come to my reading club and find out. <laughs> no. Um, so the Federalist Papers are constitutional debates, essentially. Um, when, because remember, our first charter really was the, um, it's not the Articles of Confederation. I'm a, I'm, I'm a moral. That's what I was about to say, too. So now <laughs> <laughs> um, but we basically had, like, much stronger states who all were, like, coining their own money and doing their own defense and all of these sorts of things. And it, it really just wasn't working. And so they, they put forth the Constitution. Some people weren't fully on board. And so the Federalist Papers were um, anonymously published um, newspaper... Uh, editorials basically op-eds, basically yeah mm-hmm. op-eds. i was gonna say office but i was like well it's an argument though um put put forth by alexander hamilton john jay james madison arguing for this is why we think this constitution that we're proposing is the best the best that we can do given you know all these circumstances and such making making a defense for it right so Federalist 10 is a great place to start, you're saying. It is. Are there um, any podcasts or any books that you recommend to people who just want to start learning about this? I mean, I'm I'm always faithful to my alma mater. So I will say, if you go to online.hillsdale.edu, we have free online courses that cover a lot of these founding principles taught by our faculty. We have Constitution 101. We have Constitution 201. We have early progressivism. A lot of cool stuff on there. Um which kind of deals with um, these primary sources, the people who were putting forth these ideas and why they're still important for us today. Like, why do we even need to be thinking about this? Right. So I think that's a great place to leave people for where to learn things. And one more thing that I want to give just as a piece of inspiration. So right now, you and I are the same age. So you're (laughs) 24 and you are directing a campaign here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. How do you think that, or what are some of the things that have helped you get to this point in your career this early on in your life? Good mentors. Really? So who, like, in what way have they mentored you that has been helpful? Um, I mean, I mean, that's a, that's a big question to tackle. I'll say... Are um, there any people who gave you, like, a piece of advice that really stuck with you to get here? Sure, sure. I mean... I have learned a lot from, um, like, m- my supervisors here, frankly. I mean, TPPF does great work. 
really pours a lot into their people. I think just trying to flourish where you're put is how I really try and approach everything in my mm -hmm. life is like take the opportunities that are given to you and do as much with them as you can. Um, I'm not an expert on anything, any of these things that I've talked about, but I try with every little piece of knowledge that I'm afforded to do as much with it as I can. You know, I haven't lived much life. I've read, I've read a few books, but that's really about it. Um, but it's possible to read books and not grow yourself from that. It's possible to read books and think that it makes you more than perhaps you are. And I think just that sort of... It, Finding a balance with that? Well, no, like in, intellectual humility, which, okay, Caroline, you're not humble, <laughs> but I know I should be. Like, I, I have a sense of this is what I'm striving toward and I'm going to do as much with everything I get as I can. So that's kind of kind of how I approach it. I really think a lot of it has just been given to me, honestly. Um, great And then you have to make the most with those opportunities. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing a lot of these, this overview <laughs> that I could not have done on my Completely own. Completely <laughs> incomprehensible, but... <laughs> so if people want to hear more about your opinions, where can they find you? You should follow me on Twitter at CWelton, W-E-L-T-O-N 76. And by the time this episode's air, we this episode airs, you guys can check and see if we're following Caroline finally. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, for everyone here, again, so as you said, you can look at Hillsdale for resources. And of course, if you want to learn more about what's happening in Texas, um, what it is that, um, what's going wrong so that you know how to get engaged, go to texaspublicpolicy.com. And we'll see you next Friday.